Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the New Books Network, Bryant Simon, a professor of history at Temple University, and someone I'm proud to mention is on my dissertation committee. And he is here to talk about his brand new book, just out with the new press, entitled The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Bryant, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Good to be talking with you, Steve. Uh, so to begin, why don't you just talk a little bit about yourself? I'm curious about your background and especially how you came to be a historian in general. Well, I don't know really how I came to be a historian. I don't, I don't, when I went to college, my brother was the first person in my family to go to college. And it wasn't like I knew what a historian was, but I took a couple classes with um several really good professors. Um, this guy, Tom Will, I was at Emory. I started at Emory and I just kind of fell into a couple of American history classes with this guy, Tom Williams, and then with Dan Carter. Um, and I kind of instantly was hooked. And I think what hooked me about history was the connections they made and, and, and kind of broad connections. Both of, both of these um, scholars, Williams and Carter, were really good and linking up politics with the economy, with culture, bringing in novels, and that kind of vision of connecting those dots was something I found exhilarating. And um, in, in many ways, I, I sort of finished my major twice. I went, I went to Emory for two years and pretty much finished a history major there, and then I went to the University of North Carolina and started over again. So I, I kind of couldn't get enough, and I had a lot of different kinds of professors at that point, and it was just an easy sell to me, but uh, I remember um, maybe the, the, the most amazing class I ever took was with Joe Williamson, who's a, a pretty famous Southern historian. He was working on a book called The Crucible of Race, and the class was basically him laying out this really intricate argument for what would become The Crucible of Race, and, and I, I just couldn't wait to go to that class to watch him kind of think through that and the funny thing is I actually didn't like the book much when it came out, uh, you know, but I had sort of changed in the way I was thinking about things. But watching him at work and making those connections and, and, and kind of quietly making historiographical arguments but not leading with them was really – it was just enthralling. And I, I, I still think about it. I was telling a friend of mine about this recently who asked me kind of a similar question. But that Williamson class was just was, – it was amazing. I see. How did you come to write this book about Hamlet, North Carolina in particular? Well, I knew about the Hamlet story. I was living in North Carolina in 1991 when it happened, when 25 people died um, behind locked doors, that factory. And I was a pretty avid reader of the newspaper at the time. The newspapers in North Carolina, like many places, were really good then. And the Raleigh News and Observer in particular really poured 
um, resources into covering the fire for months. I mean, into 1992, they had regular coverage of it. I read it, um, and I think it just stayed with me until years later. Um, as you kind of know, I became interested in food and food studies. And I was talking to a graduate student at Temple about a dissertation project, and I began to sort of talk about what I knew about the Hamlet fire. And I was sort of like, stop. I stopped and said, you know, let's find you a dissertation topic. I think I'm going to write about this. Um, because much of what I was interested in at the time kind of came, as I was recalling the story to, it was Tyler Green, and as I was re- recalling the story to Tyler much of the much of what was interesting to me at that moment um, kind of came to the fore, and a lot of it was about the food they were making in this factory that blew up, and it was chicken tenders. And I had written about kind of what kind of affordable luxuries in the star, in a book about Starbucks that I had written before this book about Hamlet. So I was interested in this other side of the equation: what cheap products were, where they came from, and what they hid. Why don't we start then with the basics? Tell us what happened in Hamlet, North Carolina on September 3rd, 1991. Yeah, it was a tragic day. It was the day after Labor Day, um, a Tuesday, and workers were arriving at the plant, the Imperial Food Products plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. Hamlet's a small town on the South Carolina-North Carolina border, about two hours east of Charlotte, two hours um, south of Raleigh, not on the interstate. Um, So it was a town that sort of had been forgotten economically to a certain extent. This plant had located there in some ways because it could hide there and and it could um, take advantage of labor, take advantage of a lack of regulations and um, crank out really cheap products. Well, they had been having trouble with a hydraulic line um, they fixed that hydraulic line with the wrong part, and they didn't turn off the burners that were um, heating up a huge fryer that cooked the chicken tenders. When they turned the hydraulic line back on, the, the, um, it burst, and spewed hydraulic fluid all over the place, including under this burner, and just ignited. And as it did, workers you know, kind of... Um, responded by running for the exits and they got to the exits and found them locked. Um, in one case, double bolted from the outside. In another case, they banged on the door. They tried to kick it down and unknowingly, um, the door opened to the inside. 12 workers, maybe a few more, um, having confronted those locked doors ran into a cooler. And, um, ironically, this was a door that didn't shut. And they thought they were hiding from the flames and the heat, um, but they were basically trapped by carbon monoxide gases that leaked into the cooler, and they died there. Um, by 12 o'clock that day, it had been revealed that 25 workers died behind those locked doors. Many of them, I mean, all, almost all of them died of carbon monoxide poisoning, except for a couple of people who were really closest to the fires, sustained some burns and some abrasion, some abrasions and some blunt trauma. But... Um, and then what happened afterwards was a kind of, you know, in some ways led by the newspapers was a kind of studying the forensics of the fire. Um, and what was quickly learned was that the plant had been there for 11 years. And despite the fact that before it came to Hamlet, it had um, numerous OSHA violations on its head. It had never been inspected by OSHA. It had never been inspected by local officials. The fire department didn't have any pre-fire plans for the for, um 
dealing with a blaze there despite a n- number of fires breaking out there. And the kind of um, really the story that unfolded or and the story that made sense to me was it was about that kind of systematic cheapening of the lives of some people and leaving them vulnerable to the um, kind of negligent actions of some, but, 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 that, but that, that both that that vulnerability and that negligence were in a sense produced politically by a whole set of solutions that kind of made this fire not an accident, but something um, nearly inevitable. So let's go back in time then about uh, 100 years or so before the day of the fire. And, and let's look at how we got to that point. Tell me about tell us about Hamlet, North Carolina, around the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, because it, the way you describe it, it seemed like a very different place. Yeah, Hamlet's a, it's, it's southern, obviously, but, but actually the probably better frame for it is kind of like the industrial cities of the country. It. It was an important railroad hub, and you know, for no other reason than at one point two railroads intersected there, and the decision by the Seaboard Railroad to make it into a hub allowed the town to, to build and become prosperous. And it was that the kind of place where, you know, working people could um, get a job out of high school or even before that, and keep that job for 40, 50 years and retire. And in between those two points, buy a house buy a car, buy another car, maybe a boat, and send their kids to college. And um, it had a, a particularly good hospital. It had a relatively embellished downtown with an opera house, um, a couple movie theaters. It was a kind of the American industrial dream city, right, built on relatively high wages unions. Um, and actually, the safety committees that the unions put in place that world begins to fray in the 70s, really, as a result, first of a kind of changing patterns of transportation in the United States, right? They're kind of opting for um, trucks and opting for cars on vacations. The railroad became less important. And a kind of larger economic restructuring that um, would hole out all kinds of towns in, in the country and cities from Detroit to, you know, Euclid, Ohio, to any, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, Hamlet was just, you know, one more example of that. But it also meant that like a lot of those places that get holed out, they became kind of particularly vulnerable to predatory kind of companies who themselves were kind of, I think it's a story not told enough is that in many ways the United States re-industrialized in the 1970s on top of kind of that burnt shell of its industrial kind of strength. Companies moved capital to those places that had been abandoned and reindustrialized them in really different ways. And that's, you know, the, the heart of the story that I tell is that they now become places where you can take advantage of the mass movement of women and, and other people into the labor market. So they become, you know, relatively kind of flooded with workers who are competing with each other and kind of pushing down wages. And now you have a place, it's not a high wage place, not a union place, but a place vulnerable to kind of low wage industries that will not sort of abide by safety regulations. Why wasn't Hamlet, North Carolina, as you describe it, a, a union place? What was the role of unions before the 1970s or so? And no, then it was, afterwards? it was a union place. I mean, the, the railroad workers belong to the railway federations. Um, they were relatively conservative unions, but People in Hamlet, I mean, again, defying the kind of normal story of the South, were fiercely loyal to their unions because their unions 
were what delivered them into the middle class. They understood this and what protected them in relatively dangerous jobs. Um, in fact, there was a kind of fear by some Hamlet political leaders that its union passed would somehow be this kind of odious taint that new industries wouldn't, um, wouldn't want to sort of abide by. And when Hamlet produces some pamphlets that you know, I cite in the book that trying to attract industry to town, they not surprisingly kind of erased this union past from, from its history, emphasizing instead the abundance that they, as they call it, of um, kind of hardy rural laborers, or, you know, using some phrase like that. What role did race play in Hamlet going into before the 1970s and then during the 1970s as well? What, what, what racial dynamics are in play in the town? It's interesting. I mean, Hamlet, I mean, part of the story, I think if you look at the index, I don't think I mentioned the civil rights movement at all. And then in part, I mean, and it's not to diminish the accomplishments of that struggle, but Hamlet was in some ways untouched by it. Um, and that is to say that the town remained kind of divided along racial lines, um, segregated in terms of housing, segregated on Sunday mornings, and segregated in terms of economic opportunity. Um, it had had, like many small towns across the United States and in the South, the race riot in the 1970s that had been um, triggered, not shockingly, by police, what was perceived as police um, kind of overreach. And um, so... You know, it was a town that, 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 in some ways, I don't know what untouched is the right word, but not remade by the civil rights struggle. And um, by the time of the thought, when, and, and still in the 1990s, that was true, right? It was a town where race still mattered, right? I mean, I think it's probably the best way to put it. And the majority of the workers in the plant were African-American women, Um Many of them single mothers, many of them, you know, in their own kind of personal lives were dealing with the economic dislocations that were ravaging the town of, you know, the kind of collapse of, you know, good paying jobs for men, some men kind of disappearing or at least kind of wavering from kind of their, you know, persistent and ongoing commitments to family. And they were just trying to make do of a kind of complicated situation. Um, the plan itself you know, reproduce some of the kind of classic signs of racial control. Again, the majority of the workers were African-American women. The majority, if not all, of the supervisors and maintenance officials and owners were white. Um, it was hard to escape kind of that that dimension, and workers talked about it a lot. But but also, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't as if there weren't some bonds and connections across racial lines. Um, so it was a, and part of what I was trying to get at the book is a kind of a complicated situation, a situation that defied kind of easy categorization as, um, you know, a town where progress had been made, a town where nothing had changed. It was in a kind of uneasy situation where, you know, again, race still mattered, but it didn't define everything. But race was also a source of, you know, in the wake of the fire, not just getting ahead of things, but we can talk about more later the way that vulnerability was constructed in Hamlet um, was probably no accident, right? The fact that the majority of people who worked in the plant were African-American also made it easier to forget um, that they were there and that they had a claim on the services of the city. And so when the fire happened, um, it in some ways exacerbated these existing racial tensions and, and in a sense blew up um, 
afterwards. A concept that is really central to to the book and to the argument that you that you quite successfully make in the book is this concept of cheap. And you touched on it before, but can you expand on what you mean when you talk about this idea of cheap that really comes to the fore in the 1970s and going into the 1980s in particular? Yeah, I was. I mean, I sort of set the book up. You know, when I first went to start doing research about the fire, I didn't really know what I was going to say. Um, and I had this lunch with um, three local officials in town, and they insisted to me that the fire had no – it was an accident. You know, if the owners of the plant, the um, Brad and Emmett Rowe, hadn't locked the doors, then, we, as I said, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. And then, um, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me then, and, and so I wanted to think about, you know, what – you know, in some ways, the book is a social autopsy, trying to figure out the causes of the fire. And I kept coming around to this notion of cheap. You know, they serve cheap food. There was this push for cheap, deregulated government. And in a sense, this together cheapened lives, right? And as I thought about that, I began to contrast that with the kind of older social order that sort of was, you know, at play in a place like Hamlet. And that older social order valued high wages for workers, saw the paying of high wages as a way to spark kind of um, local economic growth, right? You know, kind of like Henry Ford did. If workers made enough money, they would be able to buy consumer goods. And that also meant that, you know, we would protect workers' rights to organize and that, you know, giving them safe working conditions was important. This, in a sense, was the essence of the social bargain. High wages were good for everyone. I think what happens in the 1970s and the kind of larger part of the story that I, that I argue is, is that as inflation and economic global restructuring begin to affect the United States economy, New Deal solutions kind of falter. And there's this quick pivot, I would argue, in the United States to, to think that there has to be a different solution to the problems. And increasingly, what political officials are saying is, look, you know, we just need more jobs. And if the jobs pay less, that's fine because we're going to get people cheaper goods. So in a sense, it's kind of a, a reverse of what that earlier kind of social bargain was, which high wages would deliver economic consumption. Instead, it was low wages are fine and any job is a good job. And the bargain is we'll get you cheap goods to buy. And so the, the, the kind of theme or the thing I keep sort of stressing in the book is, is that workers spend their days making these cheap chicken products. And that's what they eat for dinner when they leave work, right? Because that's all they can afford. And, you know, as you know from reading the book, this also kind of affects their health as well. But, but, but that switch in the social bargain, we're going to give you cheap instead of high wages. Um, but what cheap does, and what I argue in the book, is hide many of its costs, right? That, that the actual price of the goods is a lie that hides all of this kind of vulnerability and risk and precarity, and this is very much a book about food, as you alluded to at the at the beginning of this interview. How did the history of chicken change in the late 20th century in particular? And um, how and you kind of mentioned this before, but again, how is that integral to this notion of cheap? Tell, tell us about the history of how Americans eat and how that changed over the course of, uh, of this period. Yeah, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I stumbled on one other kind of kind of fascinating, at least for me, fact, and that was – about the moment that the fire happened was the moment that chicken took over from beef as the nation's number one source of meat-based protein. And I was like, 
you know, this is like a kind of remarkable shift in American eating. And there's been some good stuff about this. And so, you know, I was able to do my own research and rely on the research of others to sort of talk about why this happened. And, you know, the, the first reason why this happened is there was a fair amount of research at the time that suggested that red meat was unhealthy for people. But the bigger reason why is that chicken became cheaper and cheaper. And it became cheaper and cheaper, as I show in the book, through a kind of brutal process, a process that's brutal to animals, um, you know, genetically engineering chickens, whose breasts are so big that their legs can't support them, um, by slaughtering these chickens faster um, in, again, more brutal ways, and, and in part sacrificing both those animals, but the kind of arms and limbs of the workers who process them so quickly. And and then here's the link, right? That, that the cheapening of chicken happens just at the very moment that wages are going down. And so as workers are kind of pushing their carts through small town and large city supermarkets and they get to the meat aisle, well, what's jumping out of them is the price of the price of chicken, which has been, you know, systematically kind of pushed down by a kind of relentless innovation and competition and brutality. But, and this is the other twist that happens at that moment. So you have this moment in 1990 where chicken passes beef, in part because it's healthy, in part because it's cheap, but chicken raised that way kind of doesn't have a lot of taste to it. And um, really competitive industries are looking for ways to kind of maximize their profits. And one of the things they realize is they can like glue this stuff together and fry it up and people will like it better. And so uh, also at this moment is the kind of rise of the chicken nugget. And so around 1990, 91, when chicken passes beef, just about that same time, people start talking about chicken fatigue, that people are tired of eating chicken and they loaded up with fat and sugar and salt. And basically um, half of the chicken sold by 1991 is fried. So this initial proposition of a healthier kind of alternative to beef and a cheaper alternative to beef remains cheap, but it also remains dangerous to people's kind of bodies and everyday health. And so I talk a lot about that change and where the imperial plant fits in that kind of complicated process because um, it's important to the story. Yeah, your, your history in the book of the chicken nugget is really remarkable. And I really, really enjoyed, if that's the right word for it, reading that part in particular. So that's, that's the story of cheap food to an extent. You mentioned in the, in the, in the title as well, cheap government. And I particularly appreciated um, how you talk about OSHA in, in regards to this concept of cheap government. I remember in the, say, the grocery stores, for instance, that I worked in growing up, I remember there were OSHA signs on the walls, but I never really gave it much thought to what it was exactly. So tell us about the creation of OSHA and how it fits into this larger story of cheap government that is, that's critical to your book. Sure. OSHA is, again, kind of an interesting piece of legislation um, passed by the Nixon administration during his first term in office. And some people saw it as um, a kind of culmination of the New Deal. And in some ways, it actually OSHA is a government, federal government agency that is put in place to protect workplace workers on the job. And if you think about it that way, it actually promises a kind of expansion of government's role into the factories unheard of before. They could literally come into the factories to inspect um, a plant. You know, the Wagner Act didn't do that. No piece of American labor legislation had done that. But we'll go back to my initial thing. This was a Nixonian piece of legislation. 
And um, I think we think about Nixon a lot in the Southern strategy, right, of trying to pull whites out of the Democratic New Deal coalition. But Nixon was, you know, trying to pull that coalition apart in many different directions. And so OSHA was offered as a kind of olive brand to the labor movement, to white workers, right, to leave the Democratic Party. But it was never really funded very well. And, and this is a kind of double-edged sword. So OSHA never really lived up to its promise to really protect workers. It, it, it had to have, if to do that, it would have had to make a massive investment in the number of inspectors that it had. But it did hold out a promise, a promise that labor tried to hold the federal government to, tried to hold state governments to, and, a, you know, a promise that scared the crap out of business, right? That, you know, they understood what this dynamic was. And so the moment that OSHA gets into play, it's a tussle. That tussle is in some ways um, exacerbated, again, by the economic restructuring of the early 1970s and, 19, and, and, and 1980s. And increasingly, business leaders, but not just business leaders, you know, middle-class Americans, Democrats and Republicans, begin to rethink what they, you know, the nature of the economy, and they begin to see OSHA as a conspicuous symbol of government intervention that's holding back economic growth. And the promise of cheaper government is a deregulated government. And again, OSHA is important to that symbol. Now, how does this play in a place like North Carolina? In North Carolina, again, the initial Nixon law was not just a sap to working people, not just a sap to white people, it was also a kind of you know, an entree to the South to come into the Nixon coalition. And he invoked kind of the notion of states' rights. And he said, look, if you want, you can have your own state-based OSHAs. You don't have to have federal, federal, um, federally run OSHA. Supposedly, you were supposed to have the same standards as the federal OSHA, but a place like North Carolina immediately understood what this meant. They could run OSHA, and they could systematically kind of eviscerate it. And that's what they did. So by 1991, there were appeals for cheap in the state budget in North Carolina. We got problems. You know, we got to still build roads. We got to still build prisons. Where is this money going to come from? Let's take it from OSHA. Um, that'll allow us to track more industry. And so by the time of the fire, North Carolina, this is the state that OSHA's decline in North Carolina had come to be. North Carolina had 180,000 workplaces in 1991. That is places with 11 or more employees. It had somewhere in the neighborhood between 30 and 35 inspectors whose job it was to check these workplaces. If they worked every day, five days a week, inspecting one plant, it would have taken them between 60 and 70 years to inspect every plant in North Carolina. Well, what does that mean? That means that you don't have to abide by safety standards. In fact, if you're Imperial Food Products in Hamlet, North Carolina, and you're operating in an incredibly competitive industry, where there's constant pressure on your bottom line. You're at a competitive disadvantage if you abide by safety regulations. And, you know, the, the owners of that plant, you know, it's one of the challenges of writing the book was to somehow, you know, be honest about what they did and didn't do, but not to make them bad guys in a sense, to put them in the system as well. Well, they followed the logic of the system. And the logic of the system said that you had to cut corners whenever you can. And ultimately what happened was they operated under this veil of a lack of regulation and cut corners whenever they could. And they cut enough corners that they you know, 
in a sense, they didn't value the lives of the people who worked there enough to, to sort of respect them. And they put their lives in danger and ultimately um, you know, turned their plan into a death trap. And that's really one of the, the ways that, that the concept of cheap lives comes into play. Um, and you really get into this idea about cheap lives and the cheapening of lives in this, this wider system in the chapter that you title Bodies, which is a very deeply affecting chapter. Um, and so you have also foods coming into play and the foods that people are eating changing people's bodies. So how do lives get cheapened through the food that they eat and through the work that these people in this plant are doing? Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean – in some ways, these people were systematically attacked by the system of cheap. I mean, um, a place like Hamlet, when the Rose first thought about moving there and bringing jobs and investment there, were probably hailed by local officials as, you know, and as people creating jobs, people helping the local economy. But what they really did is destroy people. And the work itself kind of um, tore apart workers' hands and backs. Um, many of them suffered from repetitive motion ailments that they self-medicated from or eventually their bodies broke down. And um, bad backs, burns, you know, the whole kind of litany of things. Not having a kind of firm sense of their rights and not sort of working for a fair employer. Many of them just left, right? So the turnover rates were really high in this plant. But at the same time, and there was a, a statistic that really kind of jumped out at me when um, the autopsy reports for the victims of the dead would note um, their height and weight. And if you ran those, I mean, again, this is a kind of problematic indicator, but just as a rough indicator, if you ran them through a kind of, you know, one of these standardized tables you can find online about what make you know, what makes a healthy body, what makes an unhealthy body, 18 and 25 would be overweight and unhealthy. And, um, this is when I really saw dramatically, and I would t- when I, I talked to a lot of the people, you know, the people I talked to who survived the fire, I'm talking about what they ate, and essentially they ate what they made. And what they made were, you know, foods that were calorie dense and filled with fat, sugar, and salt, but that's all they could afford. They were paid so little that their only choice was unhealthy food. And they were part, they were embodiments, if you will, of what has been called the paradox of plenty, where the poorer you are in the United States, particularly in some parts of the developing world, the more vulnerable you are to dangerous calories. Um, And the, the other thing that's really important about this is that this begins to sort of defy the notion of choice that's at the heart of a market based economy, right? That, that, Individual choice is what we're trying to establish, and individual choice, you know, pursued um, by everyone will create better outcomes, right? Well, but we have another kind of narrative that, you know, people who are heavy are a drain on our economy because they don't have enough discipline over their own bodies to take care of themselves, right? This kind of middle-class discourse that kind of holds it together. Well, you can see in the stories of the Hamlet victims and the people who survived the fire that they were being utterly rational, they were buying the most calories they could for the low wages they got, and their bodies were being destroyed. And when they were destroyed, they were put back on public assistance and doubly blamed, right? And, and so being considered problems. So I was really interested in the way that um, these cheap calories were affecting their lives, but also, again, the way in which we were unwilling to be honest about the system or to sort of really address the way that they were being 
they were being made sort of less healthy by the system they worked in and low wages. So the fire happens on September 3rd, 1991, and 25 people are killed. What happens after the fire, both in the short term and then in the long term? Does How does Hamlet and, and the state of North Carolina change because of it, or maybe more accurately not change in other ways because of the fire? Yeah, the fire was a, a kind of media event as well. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of the fire, um, several people rushed to town, and we can talk about each group of them. And one is, you know, reporters and television, um, cameras, and the fire gains the attention of the night line. It lands on the front page in the New York Times, and it was, you know, again, really well reported by the papers in North Carolina, particularly the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer. They created a shift for a moment in the conversation in North Carolina, and they um, politically it was unsustainable not to talk about the fire and not to sort of propose some solutions that would prevent the fire from happening again. Um, though many people sort of laid the blame really at the Rose um, feet, and in the next legi- um, in the 1992 legislative session, North Carolina passed some meaningful reforms. Um, what I argue at the end of the book is that, well, some of these reforms are meaningful and some of these reforms make you know, working people safer on the margins. It does not dislodge the system of cheap or the logic that cheap is the kind of proper and right social bargain. And, you know, chicken you know, is not an honest accounting for the price of chicken. Workplace industries remain high. Um, this industry relies on kind of vulnerable workers in different places, increasingly Latino and um, Asian workers who um, are either, do- either documented or undocumented. None of that changes, really. None of that. Um, and so to me, you know, one of the important things is, well, the fire bears um, many um, kind of the marks and the resemblance to the Triangle Factory in New York in 1911. It does not have the profound kind of, jarring of the nation's consciousness and kind of reworking the social bargain. It just, it doesn't disrupt it. And that to me is the kind of ultimate tragedy, right? That these people died without changing that conversation. Um, beyond that, the, the, the 10 year, you know, 10, 15 years after the fire are kind of harrowing years for many of the people who will live in Hamlet and, and, and survive the fire. That same day that reporters descend on town, so do lawyers. Um, and at, at, at one point, there's so many lawyers wandering around the hospital in Hamlet, the police have to come and kind of run them out of there. Um, but there is a kind of frenzy of lawsuits and of litigation. And, you know, some workers get paid. And for some workers that, that getting paid, and, you know, they get paid in some sort of substantial ways. We'll talk about cheap in a second. Um, it doesn't change the real fundamental thing I talk about is that they had a trauma inflicted upon them that just keeps kind of replaying itself. And I'll give you one, you know, so people get paid in these lawsuits and the lawsuits seem rather large when you look at them kind of in the aggregate, like 16 million and maybe more. But for Loretta Goodwin, who I opened the story um, of the fire talking about, she got, you know, maybe 40 or 50,000. I can't remember exactly. You know, I'm not, I'm not, scoffing at that, but it was because of a kind of grim calculation, right? She was 40 years old and they added up, you know, her $5 an hour job and calculated what she'd make for the rest of her life. 
And, you know, that, that kind of like reducing people to that calculation is probably not surprising. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it kind of made clear just, you know, how much some people's lives were more, worth more than others. But the, the, so Lorraine is a good example of it. Like many of the people who survived the fire, she continues to this day to suffer from PTSD symptoms and um, a kind of trauma, a trauma that um, was delivered that day, but it had, you know, had sort of started before the fire and will continue after. And there's one kind of perhaps symbol of the fire, the cheapening of lies about race that I, I think is worth repeating, and that is that that plant would remain up in Hamlet for 10 years after the fire. And that plant was in um, on the black side of town, and so it meant that for African Americans, that if they went to church, they went to school, if they went to the grocery store, if they went to their job, they had to pass the plant. And there was nobody who lived on that side of town in South Hamlet who didn't, hadn't lost somebody in the fire. And to be reminded of that and to be reminded that the city's sort of dragging its feet in their minds um, for taking the plant down and turning it into a memorial was the most graphic symbol that they didn't matter in town. And it led to anger, frustration, and a deep distrust in the political system that in a sense allows you to reproduce itself, right, if they didn't care. And... Um, I've, so the, the themes of trauma and of um, really terror are, are, are sort of the end of the story. Um, and then there are just the, the kind of harrowing parts of the story of murder, um, of vengeance, of just, you know, unthinkable um, meanness and harshness that people inflict on one another because of the trauma they experienced as a result of the fire. And you end the book by pointing out that Hamlet is not um, a story unto itself. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. And you make some really, I found, really important kind of global connections. So how was the Hamlet fire tied to a larger worldwide and ongoing story? Well, what I'm trying to suggest in, in that ending and throughout the book is in some ways the economic relationships that um, create the conditions for the fire are really the economic conditions that are um, we call globalization quite often. And that is capital is mobile. It can go wherever it wants. In an increasingly competitive global market, it finds itself going where it can find the cheapest labor. And that means creating people who aren't just low wages, but a kind of vulnerability. Um, and that's what, to me, that um, kind of late capitalism overproduces silence and vulnerability. And so, you know, when a plant blows up in Bangladesh and when a chicken factory in China blows up and when, you know, poor people in a building in London um, where regulators just disregarded the use of dangerous materials, that's vulnerability that's being created. That's vulnerability that's being created in the interests of kind of capital. And um, so, and to call them accidents is to erase the system that creates them. And so that, what, what I'm, again, getting at is this um, dynamic that happened in Hamlet um, is really a dynamic we see across the globe, but that um, 
much of the, the products that we find inexpensive are produced in this way and their price tag is a lie and um, they require this kind of overproduction of silence and vulnerability. Okay. Well, traditionally, uh, podcasts on the New Books Network, we, we ask um, a question that since this book has only been out for about a month, um, might seem kind of silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are you working on now, now that you have um, moved to, you know, this this book is out and you're moving on to a new project? What do you have um, coming up next on the docket, do you think? Nothing. <laughs> I really, um, I just I haven't really settled. <laughs> it's a bad answer, I guess. Um, it's a sensible I answer. I haven't settled on what I want to write about now. And I kind of um, have sort of promised myself not to settle on what I want to write about now. So I'm just reading and looking for some inspiration and some ideas that move me and that I want to spend a few years kind of really going over. So if you have, I mean, I'll take suggestions. I mean, I just don't know yet, and but I'll, I'll find something, I'm sure. Well then, let me ask a, a, a similar but but different question. Then, what are you what are you reading right now that you that you're enjoying particularly, history or non-history, whatever it is. Well, I'm reading the new Jasmine Ward novel, which is really good, and um, I'm also reading Sam Quinones's book about um, the kind of development of the opioid crisis, which is a really kind of masterful um, study of like changes in how we think about pain to transformations in Mexico to um, the way in which doctors are prescribing prescription drugs. It's really, and his kind of broken up into these short chapters, it's a really um, cool and interesting book. Um, and I'm also, I have a little bit of an interest in maybe writing about Philly, so I'm, I've gone back and I'm reading Lisa Levinson's book on um, um, African-American women organizing in Philadelphia, which is a... Um, a great book of a really different kind, right? A kind of historical monograph that's really smart and interesting. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you for your time. Uh, Brian, Thanks, Steve. Brian Simon is a professor of history at Temple University, and his new book, just published in the last couple months from the New Press, is The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Thanks again, Brian. You're welcome. <laughs>